as we look to our Lord in prayer. So, Lord, what we want to do now is to capture the essence of what's here. In your sovereign purposes, you allow Book 3 of the Psalms to follow all that's described in Book 2. We would assume that the natural tendency would be to start low and end high. But the exultant atmosphere of Psalm 72 gives way to the realities and the challenges of Psalm 73. And we need to think this through. And where are you in our Psalm 73 living? So, Father, in these minutes you give us to be together. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. We've come here, Father, again to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. In one of the chapters of Corey Ten Boom's book, Tramp for the Lord, she has this fascinating opening paragraph. The Germans had lost face in defeat. Their homes had been destroyed when they heard the enormity of Hitler's crimes which many Germans knew nothing about. And they were filled with despair. And as they returned to their fatherland, they felt they had nothing to live for. Ever felt that way? Lost face in defeat? Back in time? It's the end of the Civil War, and Robert E. Lee in the South is surveying the landscape, makes his way to a particular plantation, owners that he had known through the years, annihilated, destroyed. The woman of the household comes out to greet him with tears flowing down her cheeks, hoping that he would re-engage what they consider to be the enemy, the Union troops of the North. And she points symbolically to a particular massive tree stump on the plantation. She's challenging, she's pleading with Lee to re-engage what they consider to be their enemy by reminding him of what they had done to the South and that tree was symbolic of it all. But Lee, who knew Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, looked at him, her, and said, My dear, cut it down and forget it. Two different scenes, one common theme of a sense, a mood of defeat, and an encroaching embitterment within souls that something needs to be done. Maybe we need to take matters into our own hands. You ever been there? What this psalmist is going to do for you and do for me now is to take us through a series of what I would call spiritual assessments. 
There are three assessments that are found here in the section of Psalm 73 that I want to explore together with you. And the first is found in 21 down through 24, and we're going to phrase it like this. That number one, when feeling defeated, begin to assess the condition of the soul. When you, when I, are feeling defeated by the forces of life, you and I begin to assess and reassess the condition of our souls. And notice how this begins here in the 21st verse. When my soul was embittered. Notice it doesn't say when our soul, because Psalm 73 is more individualistic, while Psalm 74 is more nationalistic. But he is now wrestling with the state of his soul. But he's telling you, and he's telling me, that there is something that we cannot overlook here. This was a past tense experience. When my soul was embittered. Now you need to pause at this point and explore with me those various times in your life journey where someone let you down. Maybe it was a business person, a colleague. It might have been a spouse, it might have been one of your children, it might have been uh, somebody in the extended realm of relatives a co-worker, but it has left a sense of bitterness within the soul of your being. Now the question is, is that sense of bitterness present tense or is it past tense? That's a crucial question that you and I are going to have to wrestle with. Because he explores the contours of his soul and tells us that he was, not is, embittered. What makes the difference? Back to Corey Tenbo. After the war, Germany, Deutschland was filled with wounds and scars, not all of them on the surface. In one tiny cubicle in the camp at Darmstadt, I found a German lawyer. He was sitting miserably in a wheelchair, the stumps of his legs poking out from under a lap blanket. I mark what comes next. He was filled with bitterness, hatred, and self-pity. He told me he had once been an active member of his Lutheran church. But now, the horrible injustice of war had taken his legs, and he was bitter, there's that word again, against God and against humanity. She writes, I felt attracted to him since some of his experiences were similar to mine. One morning, I made a special trip to his room to tell him something of my life. 
and I found him sitting in his wheelchair, staring at a blank wall. His face was gray, his eyes were lifeless. I, well, I never was one for introductions, so I got right to the point of my visit. Listen to this. The only way to get rid of bitterness is to surrender it. Not to surrender to it. The only way to get rid of bitterness is to surrender it. Not to surrender to it. He turned slowly and looked at me. What do you know about bitterness, he asked. You still have your legs. The power of the story. Let me tell you a story, I said. In Holland, during the war, a man came to me begging to help liberate his wife. I felt compassion for him and gave him all of my money. I also convinced my friends to do the same. But the man was a traitor. And the only reason he came to me was to trap me so he could have me arrested. And not only did he betray me, but he betrayed my entire family and friends. We were all sent off to the prisons where three members of my family died. You ask me about bitterness? I have known it. But I also know that when we repent, God forgives us and cleanses us. The lawyer shakes his head after he listens to her share her life experience and then her presentation of the gospel. She writes later, Since I have learned not to push a person beyond where God has left him, I bade my friend goodbye and returned to my room. A year later, I was in Darmstadt again. My friends had given this man a car with special fixtures so he could drive without legs. He met me at the train station to bring me to the camp. As I got in the car, he laughed at my startled look. You taught me that Jesus is the victor, he said. Now surely you are not afraid to drive with a man who has no legs. You're right, I answered. I, I'm not afraid. I'm just so glad to see you again. How are you? Fine. And I must tell you that since you presented the gospel to me, I have surrendered my bitterness to God. There is something incredibly powerful about that way that relates to the 21st verse. The only way to get rid of bitterness 
is to surrender it, not to surrender to it. Have you done that? Now ask yourself, is this a past tense descriptive of me in my life journey? Because notice the past tenseness of what follows. It began when my soul was embittered, and then he adds, when I was pricked in heart. Pause. Pricked in heart carries with the idea of an outside force penetrating inwardly. You ever had some kind of outside force you want nothing to be part of in your life experience? Penetrate your heart? And you knew it didn't belong there? And you're wrestling with, how do you get rid of it? Notice, notice the reactions and the attitudes. He becomes animalistic at this point. But past tense. Shades of Nebuchadnezzar. I was brutish and ignorant. Under such circumstances, when we surrender bitterness rather than surrender to bitterness, under such circumstances, we find clarity within our minds in who God is and what God has done. But when we are embittered internally, there is cloudiness, there is fog, there is confusion. I was brutish, he adds, and ignorant. I was like, was, not is. I was like a beast to you. To who? To God. Now, what you and I have got to do at this point is begin to wrestle with whether or not that is truly a past tense matter. Or has something happened? What we need in life is to deal with the realities of life. What they're really all about. I hope somewhere in your life journey you're going to read Pilgrim's Progress. And there's this incredible scene that unfolds for Christian, the hero of the story, where he is traveling from the city of destruction to the celestial city. And along the way, Christian and a companion of his approach, and I'm going to quote now, a very miry sloth. Consider the language of that day in which he wrote. A very miry slough that was in the midst of the plain, and they, and they being heedless, did both fall suddenly into the bog. And the name of the slough was despond. We get despondency from it. Here, therefore, Bunyan writes, they wallowed for a time. Christian, because of the burden that was on his back, began to sink in the mire. That's not all. You ever been there? His traveling companion managed to get out 
And rather than give Christian a helping hand, turns away from the path of life and runs back home. So there's Christian now, and he's left struggling alone in the bog. You ever been there? Until a man named Help, whom Bunyan depicts as the Holy Spirit, kindly pulls him free from despondency's pit and sets him on solid ground. A Christian asks help why this dangerous plot of land has not been, quote, mended. In other words, just taken care of. So that poor travelers, people on life's journey, might go on heaven's journey with more security. And help replies, quote, This miry slough is such a place as cannot be mended, unquote. And I think about all the people who love Jesus as Lord and Savior that somewhere along the way have encountered this miry slough. And then the people they counted on head back home. And it's you and the Holy Spirit. You and the Holy Spirit. In this miry slough. And you're wondering why these sloths have got to appear in life's journey. But then you're reminded that Psalm 73 follows Psalm 72, not vice versa, as I might have penned it, because the books of the Psalms are constructed sequentially. Sequentially. As a matter of fact... In the prior book, the emphasis was upon the name of God being Yahweh, the covenantal name. While here in book three, the name that is used is Elohim. Psalm 73 is looking at the distress of Israel. And what we need here as we read this is a but God moment. He inches towards that moment, but he's not there yet. Maybe you're not there yet. But what follows captures my attention. Now, again, notice the past tenses. When my soul was embittered, was. When I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Circle what comes next. Nevertheless, what you and I need to incorporate in our life experience are some neverthelesses. Despite everything that has gone wrong, I need to recalibrate. How does this psalmist recalibrate? Notice the shift. It's from past tense to present. Furthermore, it's a shift from focus upon self to focus upon God. They go hand in hand. Watch what unfolds. 
Incorporate the nevertheless into your life experience. And then notice what he is about to unfold for you and for me. I am continually with you. Not episodically, not periodically. No, there is this determined sense of continuity about his relationship to his God. Is that where you're at? And now notice how the word you, not me, you, begins to be incorporated in the way in which he he views life. After saying, and this is his heartfelt conviction, I am continually with you, you hold my right hand, Y-O-U, you guide me with your counsel, Y-O-U, and then brilliantly, and wisely. He doesn't leave you in the present. He guides you into the future. And afterward, and afterward, you will receive me to glory. Now draw a line between the nevertheless and afterward. Both are pivotal to shift you to the next time period. The nevertheless gets you out of the past into the present. The afterward gets you out of the present and into the future. And he tells you and tells me poetically that God will receive me, receive you to glory. He's describing poetically what the Apostle Paul developed for us doctrinally. We're in Romans 8.28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. doesn't mean that all things feel good. doesn't say all things are good. No. It says that all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I read on. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. But he's using a past tense word, glorified, to talk about a future event. In other words, he's saying, it's still to happen, but it's as good as done. That's how certain your future is. And that we're glorified there is the very same idea of what this writer is stating poetically, musically here. Where in verse 24 and afterward, you'll receive me to glory. You see what he's just done? He has taken your nevertheless and you've taken your afterward and he's taken you through time, past, present, future. Have you done that with God? This is what we are bringing into what I'll call a victimized culture. 
we are replacing the victimized mindset with the victorious Savior. Have you done that? When feeling defeated, begin to assess the condition of the soul which he did. 21 through 24. Now, once you've done that, you're ready for your second assessment. It flows out of 25 and 26. That when feeling defeated, second of all, begin to assess the characteristics of the Lord. You start with a question. But it's a rich God question. Whom have I in heaven but you? He becomes incredibly God-centered. He becomes incredibly God-conscious. Were you that way when you arrived here this morning? Professor John Bailey, when he taught theology at the Edinburgh University in Scotland, began each year's lecture with this opening statement. People, we must remember that in discussing God, we cannot talk about him without his hearing every word of what we say. We may be able to talk to others as if we're behind their backs. But God is everywhere, yes, even in this classroom. Therefore, in all of our discussions, we've got to be aware of his infinite presence and talk about him, as it were, before his face. If you go on face-to-face, metaphorically speaking, with God in your life journey, are you posing the critical, crucial questions when you are in Bunyan's sloth of despair? Whom have I in heaven but you? As Christian sees his traveling companion leave him and return home without helping him out of the mire. Christian was left simply with the Holy Spirit. Whom have I in heaven but you? But what I want you to see now is the dramatic sense of the expanse here where poetically he moves from the heavens to the earth, and in the next expression, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Now, if you need a life verse, there's one to consider. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Or to express it the way the Apostle Paul expressed it in Philippi to the Philippians. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Anything else won't work. For me to live for my work To die is loss. For me to live for my life pursuits, to die is loss. 
But for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or as the psalmist puts it here, and there is nothing. This is an absolute. There is nothing on earth. He scanned it that I desire besides you. Now he takes a deep breath. I can almost see him doing this. And in 26, he takes a look at the outward and combines it with his analysis of the inward. Outward, my flesh, inward, my heart may fail. But God. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Did you notice that it does not read, but God provides strength for my heart? Better than the provision of strength is the true person of strength. But God is, you see, the strength of my heart. And to find another way to describe it as he takes you from present to future and my portion forever. And you know what? That word portion was the very same word which was used in Hebrew in your Older Testament to describe the inheritance of the Levites when the tribes were being given their inheritance. An aged Indian, we're told at the end of the Revolutionary War, half naked and famished, wandered into one of our western settlements begging for food to keep himself from starving. While eagerly devouring the bread that was given by the hand of charity, a bright-colored ribbon from which was suspended a small dirty pouch was seen around his neck. On being questioned, he said it was a charm given him in his younger days. And opening it, displayed a faded, greasy paper which he handed to the investigator for inspection. Get this. It proved to be a regular discharge from the Federal Army, entitling him to a pension for life, and signed by George Washington himself. And he was busy scrounging for a living while the promise was stuck in a dirty pouch which is an analogy of how so many live their lives. You see, the promise of God guides us not only through the expectancy of the Psalm 72 life experiences. The promise of God guides us as well through the challenges and the despondency of the Psalm 73 experiences. But God is. It doesn't simply say, but God provides. 
but God is, you see, the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, once you've taken yourself through this second assessment, you're ready for the final one, which comes naturally out of 27 and 28. And that thirdly, while feeling defeated, begin to assess the contrasts of this world. Now, he begins in verse 27 with the word, Behold. It's a visual word in the Hebrew. In other words, he wants you to stop where you are and look around. What he wants you to do and wants me to do is to look out over the sea of humanity and explore the fact that when you boil it down to the essence, there are two groups, those who have put faith and trust in Jesus and those who have not. So he starts with the knots. Behold, those who are far from you shall perish. Now, this writer's got to process this, you see, because the invaders of Israel were not the inheritors or the recipients of the promise, but yet they seem to have had the upper hand. Why are we going through what we're going through when it seems like they have the upper hand, and yet they're not loyal to Yahweh God? as it seems as though the rains continue to fall upon our life experience. <laughs> Got to stay fully aware when you're teaching, you know. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. He's talking about eternal destinies. What I want you to do now is to draw a line from the but God that you found in verse 26 to the but for me that you find in verse 28. Their gains are short term. But to put it in the words of the Apostle Paul, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, Therefore, but for me, it is good to be near God. Are you near him? Have you cultivated the discipline of the sense of God's nearness? Notice the deliberate decision he has made. I have made the Lord, God, my refuge. It would have been easy to write, and God has made himself my refuge. But in the challenges and the difficulties of life, he deliberately says, I have made the Lord God my refuge, even though our nation is being assaulted and life is threatened. Have you ever asked yourself, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, why God just didn't take you home after you were born again? Here's your answer. That I may tell of all your works. He left you here to tell others of what God has done. 
when the disciples were pondering in that upper room, that sense of the mood and the defeatedness of life, because there was a stone rolled in front of that grave, they had not taken into account the significant promise that had been delivered to David that this kingdom was to be an eternal kingdom, and that placard over the cross of Jesus Christ announced that he was indeed king of the Jews. And so three days later, Jesus appears to various peoples and then appears to those who are afraid, fearful, defeated in that upper room, and they realize that they are not the victims. They are standing with the victor. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, where are you positioning yourself? Among those who view themselves as victims and the victimized in the culture? Or do you stand with the victor who three days later was raised from the dead? It's time to assess. Let's stand together. So, Father, we need these but God moments. We would love for the Psalm 72s of life to be flipped with Psalm 73. But you, the sovereign God, in your wisdom, construct the sequence of the Psalms to help us to deal with the realities of life. And even though we could be staring so often in the eyes of defeat, remind each one here that we are not victims. We have a relationship with the victor. So if there's anyone who came here this morning and their life experience has been one of bitterness, teach them not to surrender to bitterness. But now surrender that bitterness to God. And may they live in the victory of the resurrection. And for this, we give you the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.